I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, the missionary to Tom Nook's Animal Crossing Island. <laughs> uh, and I am Dean Detloff, uh, the Pope of Animal Crossing. <laughs> There's got to be one. I can get my encyclical to all your mailboxes immediately. I have been playing a lot of Animal Crossing this week, so that's in my brain hard. Uh, <laughs> if anyone comes to my island, you can come. Come on over. It's fine with me, but you can't curse on my island. But anywhere else. Wow, what fine. a rule. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you got to have one rule at least. Yeah, you have to have one rule, and it's don't curse. Please don't chop down on my trees. Two rules, I guess. <laughs> uh, how have you been getting by in this quarantine, Matt? Um... It's been fine. I mean, are you talking about Animal Crossing getting by or, or just in real life? Just well, I mean, either. I, I can see it's a struggle to uh, distinguish between the two for you at this stage. It's hard. I mean, honestly, they're uh, yeah, they're they're I think the only way I've been getting through the quarantine is Animal Crossing. So um, Fair that's enough. the answer. That's it. Yeah. What about you? Man, uh, so my wife and I got these uh, these board games and puzzles and we pulled them all out to remind ourselves what we have. And we started playing them and quickly remembered uh, the ones that we were bored of. Um, and uh, Emily uh, got a thousand piece space puzzle and she started doing that on our dining room table, which I suspect is now rendered uh, unusable for a little while. <laughs> so we'll see if how wanna, that goes. Um, if you want to eat, you got to finish this puzzle. That's right. I know it's a real threat. Uh, our cats, I think, are probably also going to be, you know, a big help at night when we go to bed. So we'll see how that uh, pans out. <laughs> yeah, good point. They well, love doing we, puzzles. Uh, That's one thing I know about cats. The one thing you got to know about cats is they love doing puzzles. Um, well, we hope that everyone else uh, out there that listens to this podcast is doing really well. I mean, I hope that people that don't listen to this podcast are doing well, too. But, you know. Unless you're like an ICE officer, in which case I hope you have coronavirus. Yeah, I don't have much sympathy for you, ICE officer. Um, well, all that's going on in the background. And um, let's see, if you've been to grad school, and if you haven't, it's fine. I'm not going to suggest that you go. But if you've been there, um, and uh, you know what you do when you start feeling stressed and scared about the world, you read a big book of theory to detach yourself from all your life's problems. <laughs> and that's exactly what Dean and I did this week. Um, we 
went pretty far outside the usual. Um, and we read a book by Bruno Latour named Rejoicing on the Torments of Religious Speech. Um, if you've never heard of Bruno Latour, oh boy, you're in for a treat. He is <laughs> he is French. He is pretty old. He is a sociologist of science. He does media theory and philosophy of technology and just, I don't know, religious studies kind of stuff. He's a pretty influential thinker these days. Um, man, I don't know if uh, five years ago you couldn't spit without reading a book without hitting a book um, that he was mentioned in as like sort of a primary uh, author. When I was writing my dissertation, everyone was crazy about Bruno Latour, including me. Um, so we read a book that he wrote about religious speech, and it's a real wild book and pretty fun. And I think it does a good job of kind of explaining the difficulties of talking in religious ways. Um, I don't know, Dean, what do you think about it overall? What can you say? Yeah, it's a really fascinating book. I also read it for my dissertation. So that's the context in, context in which I've encountered Latour as well. Uh, but don't be scared off. He does have things that I think are interesting to say. Uh, Latour is great because even when you disagree with him, I think it's a sort of productive disagreement. Like he's not a Marxist, for example, on purpose. Right. Uh, so if you are a Marxist, you have to, you know, figure that out. And it's productive to have an argument with Latour on those kinds of things. Um, in terms of uh, religion, I mean, he is sort of, you know, like many French people, grows up in a, a Catholic sort of context and is trying to sort out what that means. And he's a philosopher of science. So there's all kinds of stuff that feed into that. What's really interesting about this book in particular is Latour is usually, I think, a pretty like detail oriented kind of writer, like very creative, very, yeah. uh, cl but, but like very clear. Uh, this book is, could not be more different. It is lyrical, not clear. The argument is not really even an argument. It's, it's almost like a stream of consciousness. Um, it's written in the first person. It's very sort of meditative. And the idea is that Latour is trying to figure out is there actually anything meaningful about religious speech? And what is it? What does it mean to talk like a real religious person? Uh, and at least for me, it's a really interesting project because uh, not only because we live in a time where it is weird if you're a religious person, uh, but also because in moments of like huge crisis, uh, at least I always find myself like thinking again about what my faith means to me, if anything at all. So it's like a really useful book for that, just to sort of get some themes on the table. And Latour says a lot of wild and crazy things that you get to decide whether or not you agree with, which I think is just like a fun ride, if nothing else. Yeah, definitely a fun ride. Um, this book also has um, one of my biggest pet peeves in writing, uh, which is there are no chapters. And that makes me so mad. <laughs> because like when you're reading no a book chapters. that's... Yeah, when you read when you're reading a book where there's chapters, it feels like you're leveling up as you go, and because uh, <laughs> because chapters are uh, are essentially the gamification of books. But this one, it's like, when am I done? When do I stop reading? I have no idea. <laughs> when can I? You feel never good get out of the stream. Yeah, you never get yeah, out. Yeah. Uh... There are no chapters, but there are also no footnotes or endnotes, which is a huge <laughs> benefit, if you ask me. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, really leaning into the French philosophy vibe there. Um, <laughs> there's no secret book within the book yeah that's right well um yeah i don't know i guess we came to this book because of this weird conversation that dean and i had on um uh i don't know on skype or whatever digital platforms these days are all blending together but um <laughs> yeah I, I don't know um so now that we live in a completely socially isolated world or i mean 
you know, hopefully we're kind of socially isolated, I suppose, so no one gets sick. Um, you know, we're surrounded by Zoom meetings and Google Hangouts and everything is just like way weirder than it was before. All of the weirdness of the world is explicated because of the, I guess, digital means that they're coming to you by. Or at least that's the case for me. If it's not for you, that's okay. But I was telling Dean this story about this past weekend. Uh, my wife and I were doing confirmation classes for the Episcopal Church over Zoom. And it was extremely strange. And and like, this isn't this isn't my first rodeo. This isn't the first time I've been a part of a church. And I've been through membership classes before, and it's fine. But just like, you know, doing it over Zoom and having your priest stand in his kitchen wearing like a regular t-shirt and like <laughs> <laughs> explaining concepts, like theological concepts to you, like the Trinity on a whiteboard over Zoom is just like, what am I doing? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> <laughs> um but like i it was so weird because like you know we were sitting my wife and i were sitting here like staring at our computer and like our child was like running around in the background and he's like explaining how you know uh all the parts of the trinity are co-eternal and co-equal and how important that is and like this is big theological concept and like over and over the priest was just like okay does anyone have any questions about this do you have any strong disagreements and like no i don't <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any big disagreements with the Trinity. And then he was, you know, he moved on and he was talking about the virgin birth and like all these kind of things about it. He's like, does anyone have any, like anyone want to push back against this? And it's like, no, I don't. I feel like, first of all, I feel bad, like an uncritical thinker that maybe like I'm, I'm not smart <laughs> enough to like disagree with the Trinity or the virgin birth or something. But on the other hand, I mostly feel just utterly ambivalent about it and most other theological concepts that kind of come along <laughs> with it. And I feel like I just accept it without really thinking too much. And um, as I was telling Dean this, we were kind of talking through it. And all this made me think a lot of Latour's approach to religion. Um, you know, it's not so much about belief or describing the world or something, but instead religion is about something completely outside the, the paradigm of agree or disagree. Um, so, you know, asking if you agree with the Trinity is like a stupid thing to ask. Because, <laughs> um, you know, like, what does that mean that you agree or disagree with the Trinity or the virgin birth? I don't know. Um, you know, if you, if you're saying like, well, you know, it didn't actually happen this way because it's biologically impossible. Like, well, that's, you're missing the point. It's boring. You're, you're doing it wrong. So instead in all of this, Latour thinks that religion is about, you know, what materializes when you participate in it? Like what happens when you, um, when you say it earnestly or, or try to say it earnestly or fail to even, Religion and spirituality for Latour isn't like understanding and agreeing with like global warming. Instead, it's like two people affirming their love through language, <laughs> which is, I mean, it's, that sounds like a little bit sentimental, but Latour doesn't mean it that way, I guess. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, it's about an interaction that happens um, in light of all of the other stuff going around it. You know, it's not something that you just say you believe or you don't believe. It's a, a lot bigger question that, you know, does something as you say it. And it's a pretty interesting take. So uh, I guess today we're going to figure it out and get into some of this book and try to try our best to explain what the heck is going on here. Yeah, I think that one thing that we should say as a prefatory note here as well is that this might seem like not the usual fare for our podcast. We used to talk about philosophy every once in a while, but not, you know, a little bit. Um, but it does matter for people interested in the left and Christianity. 
I think because Latour helps us kind of get at some of those questions about religion and the left, like how can you be a Marxist and believe in God, or or what does it mean to believe in God and be a Marxist or a materialist? Uh, what's the sort of degree of difference there? And although Latour isn't intervening in that specific conversation, he does actually give us some kind of interesting coordinates to enter into that conversation. So we'll circle back to that, I think, uh, definitely at the end, but uh, throughout the conversation too. Uh, one thing that I think is helpful to set this text up is to say what Latour is trying to get us to think about is what does it mean to say that you are a participant in a religious tradition that basically has its formative uh, influence in medieval society, a society that is very far away from us today, that doesn't connect with us today. Uh, he tells a story of like saying thee and thou in a church and how it just feels extremely weird. Like it doesn't make sense. Like you're, you're sort of putting on an act when you do that. Um, you know, like I always think about how, yeah, you go to church and you say thee and thou, and then you like check your smartphone on the way out. Like there is a real disconnect there. Um, and I think that what that made me think of immediately was, uh, the essay we've talked about in the past by Louis Althusser called A Matter of Fact. And Althusser also had a, a criticism of the church being too tied to its medieval, uh, origins. And he had this suggestion that a proletarian revolution would actually liberate the church from its kind of trappings, um, and, and find a new way of, of speaking the gospel into today. And again, I don't think Latour is doing the same thing as Althusser, but, uh, these are just some connections that feel very natural. So anyway, we'll talk more about it. Uh, but I thought that might be a good way to set things up a little. Yeah, totally. It's good. Um, I don't know. So hopefully this is all making sense to you, the listener, and why we're interested in it, right? <laughs> this is about asking the big <laughs> essential questions of Christianity. And um, I think that if we can kind of get to a comfortable place with them, I think we can more easily understand the um, the ways that Marxism uh, and other leftist ideologies might work together with Christianity rather against it. Um, cool. So let's just kind of jump in to the text and like talk about a few of the things that Latour says. Um, so in the introduction, I mentioned this thing about, you know, asking if someone believes in God is a different kind of question than asking if someone believes in global warming. So I'm going to read a chunk here from that. It is a bit long, but it's good. So I don't know, deal with it. <laughs> when you are asked the question do you believe in god you answer yes i believe in god you pretend to believe that the exchange is just like the other one do you believe in global warming yes because of recent results which show that in the last decade we've seen the eight hottest years since the temperature began to be measured in a viable and standardized way by a chain of meteorolog meteorological stations spread throughout the globe the only problem is that although the second question is perfectly formulated the first is misplaced. Well, we should have resorted to a very different language game. Put me a question that isn't trying to lead anywhere, but allows us to forge something anew. For instance, a question that instead of taking the form of do you believe in global warming goes more like this. Do you love me? Once we rely on this new template, we immediately discover we no longer have any right in such a speech time to be obscure. Whereas the previous questions left room for mystery, this one must be understood at the outset. Otherwise, it will have no effect on the person it's supposed to change, convert, or transform. Okay, so what's going on here is pretty clear and straightforward, I think. Um, the question, do you believe in God, is a question that is fundamentally different than do you believe in global warming? 
Um, <laughs> I think this is like, uh, first of all, like these two questions juxtaposed are really good uh, places to start because um, it draws out that question, like religious questions and scientific questions are different types of questions and they have different contexts and nuances to them. And even like the motivations behind them are way different. So um, it, I guess it, it kind of throws everything into question, right? If, if, uh, if do you believe in God is a bad question and instead the questions that we should be asking, or, you know, when we want to ask someone about that or something, the questions should be formulated more like, do you love me? And in this sense is, is really interesting, right? Because um, do you believe in global warming is easy? Yes or no. Like, do you believe in this set of data that supports these claims? Do you believe in the authority of science? Do you believe in, you know, all of these sort of things and, and how do your politics come into play and all of that too? But do you love me is like a different type of question altogether, because it's not about like, you know, you could say if, if you're, if your partner asks, do you love me? And you're just like, yeah, like they'd be pissed at you <laughs> because that's not how you describe. That's not how you communicate love to someone. Right. Uh, you know, you could um, there's this part in in the book where Latour is like, well, you know, if you really wanted to answer the question, do you love me in the same way as do you believe in global warming? You could just record a, a clip of yourself on a, on a recorder that says, yeah, I love you and play it for your partner whenever they get like, you know, they get confused or they they forget or they don't really feel it or whatever. And if you did that, you would be a giant asshole because like the question, <laughs> do, you, do you love me? is not one that you can answer just by an easy assent or dissent. Um, it's something that you're committing to. You're, you're, um, you're committing to like what happens when you say that you love them, right? So there's this larger thing at stake, and it's like a, a risky kind of thing that's at stake. Because if you say it wrong or you, you hesitate before you say something about it, right, it all can kind of crumble and make you feel further apart from the person. So um, Latour's big thing about religion here is Belief isn't like the right question. Uh, instead, it's about this larger relationship and participation and what happens when you say that thing. And uh, damn, it's wild. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And it's such an interesting juxtaposition too, right? Uh, elsewhere in the book, he makes this analogy between um, is believing in God the same thing or is religion doing the same thing that a map is doing or having a GPS is doing? And he says no. So whereas a map can give you all kinds of coordinates and it can suggest things about the world uh, by visualizing it, by giving you, you know, these kind of points of reference that are out there that you could go to this place on the map and say, yep, this map is right. Uh, religion doesn't work that way. You can't verify the truth of religion in the same way that you can verify the truth of a map. Uh, and I think that, you know, Latour isn't very subtle about the fact that I don't think that he believes in God as some kind of, I don't know, entity out out there, wherever, wherever God might be. Right. So <laughs> I don't know if that's really important to you, like the book will frustrate you, but in a good way. Um, but I think that nevertheless, Latour is right about something like that, like religious speech is not the same thing as having a map. Uh, a map is trying to help you get somewhere that is like specific, uh, but religious speech is trying to change how you move through the world. Like it, it is a fundamentally different kind of technology or tool. And I think that's one thing that I really value about this text as well. Uh, Latour is way less interested in what does religion mean and a lot more interested in what does religion do or mm -hmm. what does it do to you to say that you're part of a religion, uh, which is not the same thing as saying, yeah, I believe believe or don't believe in global warming. Yes, your habits might change, your patterns might change, whatever. Um, 
but it doesn't it, it doesn't sort of uh, accuse you in the same way that religion does. Right. Where it's like, yeah. uh, do you love me or not? Right. It's a very sort of different kind of uh, question. And I think that is also just a helpful way of understanding. OK, well, do I love God? That's a very different question than do I believe in God? And, mm-hmm. you know, you might say yes or no or I don't know, but uh, it puts the question differently. Mm hmm. Yeah, it does put the question differently. Um, actually, now that you say that, that's really interesting because during the um, confirmation class, we were talking about the weirdness of the Apostles' Creed and how some people might have, you know, uh, trouble saying that I believe in the Holy Spirit because they didn't know what that meant, right? Like in this like sort of uh, theological sense. And he was, just, and the priest was like, "What if you said, you know, I love the Holy Spirit instead of believe? Like, what if you did that?" And it's like, yeah, well, like that's different. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, yeah, um, that's a good explanation. Um, one quick quip before we move on. Uh, Latour kind of goes on to uh, poke a little bit more at this, like, difference in the types of question uh, in a little bit a little bit later in the paragraph. And he says, um, instead of trying to answer the question, do you believe in something, uh, he should have refused to answer with a polite apology. Sorry, but the question isn't put very well. It isn't framed very well. Or, more brutally, ask a stupid question, get a stupid answer. That's a good one. <laughs> Saying that you believe in God is the is the wrong the wrong feel, the wrong vibe. Do something different. Yeah. Uh, before we move on too, just because you brought up the creed, um, Latour actually has a very kind of funny gloss on the Apostles' Creed in this book. Um, so at one point he says, uh, so he's talking about how like when he thinks of himself in a church or whatever, he feels like he has to make a lot of qualifications in order to believe what he says. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has this like very funny meditation on it where he says, to get myself off the hook, I try to resort to flurries of mental reservations. But what an ordeal. I have to replace what I say out loud. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, with a translation that I have to do in my head quick smart. Uh, like, quote, I'm certain of the indisputable framework of ordinary existence. The power is not in question, and I know it's not about belief and so on and so forth till the end of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, but I don't keep at it long. My translation is too long or too slow, too convoluted. I can't quite catch up. I lose the thread. I'm forced to overlook unfathomable, unfathomable whoppers, consubstantial Virgin Mary descended into hell, life everlasting, before we even get to the sermon, which will only add to these misunderstandings. It's such a torrent of ill-digested words that I can't quite reprocess them, recycle them anymore. Nothing for it. I'm out of sync. I'm overwhelmed, disgusted with myself for uttering so many truths grudgingly and for not being able to spruce up so many untruths. Uh, and I feel, I mean, man, what a perfect description of what it's like to go to church some Sundays. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, that is exactly how I feel. Like, okay, yeah, I'm ready. I'm here to to re- recite the creed or whatever. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I do believe this. How could I believe it? Oh, wait, we're already on to the next thing. <laughs> and I think that that is just like a, a really kind of humorous way of, you know, telling a real existential situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you can't say when you say, you know, I I believe in the, um, you know, uh, virgin birth and you say, well, but it's too quick. You can't. <laughs> it's just too fast. It keeps moving. Yep, exactly. Um, well, maybe we should uh, talk more a little bit about how this works uh, with respect to religion being something that transforms you, right? So, OK, uh, the Apostles Creed isn't like a map, right? It's not for Latour. Um, something that is giving you a bunch of reliable sets of data that you can go out in the world and be like, aha, there it is, God Almighty, the Father, the person I just affirmed in church, right? That's not how it works. Um, And he has this really neat way of getting into that by talking about angels. So he says, do a test. 
compile a list of everything said by the angels in the Bible. Despite supposedly being tasked with conveying messages, uh, you'll learn next to nothing about anything. <laughs> uh, the information content of those thousands of injunctions remains close to zero. Unless they're turned into clues guiding the erudite labors of linguists, archaeologists, or specialists in angelology. This is because angels do not convey messages. They change those they address. What they transfer is not an information content, but a new container. They don't bring maps offering some hold to be starved, off, uh, starved of knowledge. They transform their inter interlocutors. What they convey are not telegrams, but persons. Uh, and I think, again, that's just like a really nice kind of poetic, but also true way of explaining what does happen in the Bible, right? Uh, angels show up and they're like, don't be afraid. And yeah, they say like, you're going to have a kid or not. Um, but the real kind of uh, point of angels showing up is to transform the relationships of people in the world uh, to become, you know, the person who could be the mother of God or the people who could go uh, pay tribute to the infant Jesus or whatever. And I think that's a, a, a telling metaphor for what religion is supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. I like that last line, too. What they convey are not telegrams, but persons, right? That uh, they, they change you um, by becoming sort of subject to them. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, when I think about that idea, right, that religion, uh, or here anyway, angels convey not telegrams of persons, uh, I think especially about all that stuff that we've been doing on the Sandinistas lately. Mm. Uh, you know, so a bunch of peasants in Solentaname get together in church and mass and they talk about the Bible. And that very act sort of changes them into different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. uh, if you read a book like the Gospel in Salentaname, uh, which is the record of a bunch of peasants talking about the Bible, uh, you won't get like good biblical exegesis and you won't get like accurate kind of textual criticism about what the Bible really means right. or what Christianity really says. What you will get is an interaction with the text that changes the people who are reading it. And that just seems like a really good way of understanding like th even the truth value of what religion is doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true, right? Like when Loriano or whoever says, uh, yeah, the Virgin Mary, they would say that she's a communist. And it's like, you know, textually or historically, no, right? Like, that's exactly <laughs> what every like undergrad Bible professor would tell you. But like, what's important is that that is the that's the reading that he's bringing to it. And that's also like what he's coming, you know, he's getting from it. And yeah, I mean, Gospel and Sultanami is a great example, because it's like, it's a it's a moment that these people are like changing, right? Not just um they're, they're translating the Bible into their own situation, which I know is like, you know, you're not supposed to do that, whatever. Um, but they're doing it anyways, because how can you not? Um, but they're also like, they're, they're translating the Bible, the Bible's translating them. It's this sort of like, you know, mutuality of effects. Um, you kind of come under the, under the spell of the thing when you are interacting with it. And yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. Um, maybe you can quickly say something about that that bit about translation there, like, especially in gospel and Sultaname, it's so clear, right. That mm -hmm. people outside of a revolutionary situation, rarely, unless you're like us would say that like, uh, Oh yeah. Um, in the Magnificat, uh, Mary is a communist, right. That's like an uncommon reading, but in that sense, they're translating, um, the situation that they're in and the text to kind of fit the moment. And this is something that Latour actually talks about a lot in um, this book, for sure, in Rejoicing, but also in other books that he has, um, most specifically a book that is called We've Never Been Modern. Um, yeah, so translation is a is a sort of technical term here for Latour. And basically what it means is that um, translation is the means by which we kind of create hybrids, like more and more sort of interconnected and different sort of ideas and things. 
um, translation is always countered by the other move called purification, the, the, um, the tendency to sort things out into specific categories to say, no, that's not right. You know, like this is the part of the, the Apostles Creed I don't believe in. This is the part I can believe in. This is the one that jives with modern science. This is the one that doesn't, etc. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, this is interesting, though, because this is when we get this thing here about angels, um, you know, it's, it's these moments where um, people are translating a text, but also translating themselves. And that's a cool thing, right? That's what religion's about is transformative moments where you're no longer the same. Yeah, that's a really good way into talking about the truth value of religion in Latour. Uh, so we've been saying this whole time that the the kind of truth that religion is after is not the same kind of thing that supposedly scientific truth is after, which, uh, okay, Latour is a historian of science. We could say a lot more about that, but let's put it aside. Let's just say for Latour, science is a lot more complicated than it seems to. <laughs> but nevertheless, yeah. um, the the kind of truth that religion is after is not the same kind of thing that like a physicist trying to figure out what's going on with atoms it's not they're not after the same kind of uh object of knowledge um and uh <laughs> what uh latour says here i think is really interesting so he says i've stuck it in a particular agony of speech in a specific hesitation my own thinking it was better to approach the machine for elaborating utterances by that he means like the tradition of christianity rather than commenting yet again on phrases whose mechanism today escapes the great majority, so it's not connecting. Even though everything in those utterances is false, everything becomes true if you translate them, if you transfer them while offering them the, the vehicle specific to them, which is not a message, a doctrine, an insight, a consolation, but a form of good word that does what it says. Look up, get up, time is fulfilled, it's you I'm talking to, you are what it's about here and now. Either those phrases are heard and actually do what they say and they are right, or they fail in their felicity conditions and they instantly become untruthful. Mm. And this makes total sense, especially if you've been an evangelical, I think. Because, yeah. <laughs> like, right, like, if you get into, like, an argument at the coffee shop with, like, your one atheist friend or whatever, like, you immediately know deep down that you are wrong. <laughs> like, you for sure are losing the battle, even if you think that you're not. You try so hard to be like, no, in fact, as uh, such and such an apologist says, uh, as, as Lee Strobel said at my church six weeks ago, uh, <laughs> in fact, uh, you can prove that Jesus was was real and did exactly this right uh but you know that like you're on the losing end uh but for latour that's actually not the truth of religion it, if you if you fight the battle on that ground well you you've already lost uh it's rather can you kind of live into this reality that religion is uh not just inviting you into but demanding you participate in mm -hmm. and that like again just totally changes the way that you might understand what it's like to affirm something like a religious tradition yeah totally i mean i know that latour is talking from this sort of like this this catholic perspective but uh when, when i was reading this book it, it's hard to kind of separate out i mean it's hard to interpret the book without uh kind of letting my own experience bleed into it and talking about how um i, I mean when you when you think about it in terms of high church and giving your uh giving yourself over to like liturgy and talking this very particular way yeah, I mean, sometimes that works. But like, <laughs> when think of my evangelical background, I would not want to give myself over to that. I would not want to swallow all of that. <laughs> I don't want right. to just blindly accept that. 
<laughs> right. That's a there's a there's a type of uh, torment in that type of religious speech. I'm not ready to encounter quite yet. <laughs> right, right. And I think that also has to do with uh, the fact that at least these sort of bigger liturgical traditions, I mean, they're they are riddled with problems. I'm not the kind of person who's like, aha, those stupid evangelicals are simply not refined enough for the full culture of whatever, like high church <laughs> Christianity. I think that is extremely dumb. Uh, but I think what makes it at least kind of easier for me anyway, as a person who at one time was an evangelical and now go to the Catholic church where I was also baptized as a kid and raised in and all that kind of thing is like, uh, <laughs> walking into mass, you're just like, yeah, everybody knows that like, there's something kind of bizarre here, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like nobody's gonna, you know, say for a few, for sure, outspoken and annoying Catholics, the vast majority of people, if you ask them flat out, like, you know, do you believe in evolution? They'll be like, yeah, obviously, like, what are you, a crazy person? Like, yeah, of course I believe <laughs> in evolution. You know, like, do you believe in the Big Bang? Yeah, we believe in the Big Bang. And it's like, you know, th- these are things that are sort of taken for granted, even alongside all the absurdities that you do affirm at mass. Mm-hmm. So there's a sort of tacit acceptance that, yes, like we're we're trying our best to live into something that isn't a, a kind of obvious direct one-to-one correlation with the world we encounter outside of the church, which is the opposite of evangelicalism, right? Everything that yeah. is said in the church has to be a one-to-one correlation. And if it's not, like, then there's a disaster. Yeah, that's actually something I really appreciate about extremely high church Episcopalianism. Like, um, at my church, the, the things that I really like about it, there are two things. Uh, and the first thing is that they have a sensor and there's tons of incense every week and it hurts my nose. Uh, the second <laughs> thing I really like about it is that the the priest, uh, he like sings the liturgy. Like, <laughs> like, I've never seen anyone do that in Episcopal church before. I mean, maybe <laughs> other people do it. Who knows? Uh, but he like sings the liturgy. And I like these two things because they're actually so otherworldly that it's just like, this is a very fun game to be a part of, I guess is how I feel every week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm right. so into this like very bizarre situation that we've created here. And I, I want to live in this world where we have good smells and a weird, a weird, a weird song. Uh, this is the one I want to live in um, rather than the one outside for sure. And you know, there's, then there's also like a sermon about like uh, a labor exploitation too. So it's not like cloistered or whatever, but still I like the, uh, I like the, the aesthetic and the way that works um, in, in the sense of like, yeah, just creating this other sort of moment. Yeah, that's right. I like that a lot, too, because I think it just, again, like helps you kind of live into it. I was just rereading a, a book by one of my professors and the guy who founded the Institute for Christian Studies, where I go to school, a guy named Hank Hart, Hendrick Hart. Uh, he co-wrote this really interesting book called Walking the Tightrope of Faith. And uh, one of the other co-writers, there's a lot of contributors, but the other main one is this guy named Kai Nielsen, who's a very famous Canadian Marxist. Um, he's definitely a Marxist of a certain kind, but a Marxist nonetheless. And the book is basically like them talking about religion along with some other people, but primarily them. And uh, there's a really interesting moment where Kai Nielsen, he's like a cool guy. He thinks you can be religious and that's fine, even though he's not one. Like he's an atheist, but he's like, I can get down with uh, all these other folks. He like name checks people like Dorothy Zoela and Gregory Baum and so on. Um, and uh, there's a moment where he's like, you know, at the end of the day, I just think like, I can't believe in God because like, how could you? It's sort of absurd. And uh, it is what it is. And Hank's response is so great because he says, uh, well, 
Um, what if, uh, could you like believe in God without actually saying whether or not God exists? And if you can say, yes, you could, then that kind of, again, changes the game. And he does a move similar to Latour here where Hank says, uh, whether or not you believe God exists, you can believe in God by living in the world, uh, in such a way that attests to your belief in God. And, uh, that's sort of the proof that you believe rather than affirming, you know, one kind of a line of a sentence on a page or not uh and at least to me like i thought that was such a compelling way of even answering a specific marxist objection like it's not trying to convert this guy or anything but just being like well i believe in god because i live in a particular way and that's enough for me which i felt was like exactly how i go about the world anyway right well it's yeah that's good it's like when you see the uh the letters fsln on the side of the hill right right of, of course it's God, you idiot. Um, okay. <laughs> it's a, a deep cut, I guess, unless for all you really paying attention to the poetry out there. Um, okay. <laughs> so I guess we can kind of move on a little bit here. This will kind of rehash some of the stuff we've already been talking about in a different way. Um, there's a, a quote later on where uh, Latour is talking about like faithful and being unfaithful and the connection between these two things. And I like it a lot. Uh, so Latour says, uh, but to be faithful, you have to be unfaithful. To retrieve the sense, you have to abandon the letter. To retranslate, you have to dare to sacrifice the old translation. To betray slash translate afresh. You have to not hesitate, but I do hesitate and tremble. To translate, betray afresh. This is because what I most want not to do is confuse God with some sophisticated GPS. What lovers call their love that love capable of lasting and growing deeper always materializes for them in the fragility of a risky speech act that forces them to keep on raising the stakes. Depending on how they speak to one another, they find themselves as distant as strangers or as close as they've ever been. So I like this because, um, I mean, first of all, if you, <laughs> I love, I love whenever someone writes to be faithful, you have to be unfaithful. That's my favorite thing to do. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's some good style. Um, but yeah, I like this so much cause it's, it's true though. Right. Because like to be faithful, uh, to be a faithful Christian, it means you have to kind of like figure out what a thing means for a given situation. I mean, you know, not unlike the Sandinistas or whoever, um, does reading the gospel in that moment mean participating in a revolution? Like you have to be pretty gutsy <laughs> to, uh, you know, to say <laughs> yes to that. Right. Because you might be, be you, you might be betraying a certain other type of reading. And in fact, you know, uh, Ernesto Cardinal was right. He was this person kind of shaped in the type of pacifism from from Thomas Merton. And he was, you know, betraying that in a certain way. Right. But you have to also not hesitate, even though you are hesitating because you're freaking out about it. And like that's the only way you can kind of get through the situation is is negotiating um, what you're going to do in the situation with your encounter with the text, with your translation of the text, your reading of it into the world and like what you're going to do with any of it and, and what happens if you are reading it against what someone else has done. And, and the, the, the juxtaposition of that type of idea about faithful and being faithful, you have to be unfaithful with the, the lovers calling out their love is, is such an interesting thing too, because like, telling someone you love them is a risky thing, right? Cause they could say no, or they could goof it up or you could goof it up. Mm -hmm. And like, um, you know, the, the longer you're with someone, the more intense those declarations of love have to be, or 
I mean, maybe, I guess, you know, you, but, you, but, the, but it's like you keep on raising the stakes. Are you going to move in together? Are you going to have a kid? Are you going to be together until you die? Right. Like these are the <laughs> these are the stakes of love, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and there's a lot at stake, too. Right. If you do it wrong, you'll you'll fuck up your whole relationship. And that's even that's worse. So um, that's faith for Latour. And I think he's right. <laughs> the record shows uh, Latour is right. <laughs> Write it down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, I definitely resonate with that, too, especially the being faithful and unfaithful. Uh, we'll talk about this again for sure later, but it just reminds me of that quote we have at the beginning of the show right before we start talking from Marika Rose from like forever ago, uh, where she says um, something about, you know, to be a Christian, you, you have to uh, be faithful to some aspects and betray other aspects of the faith. Yeah, um, that is like really important to do. And in this particular context with Latour, it's like you have to do that just in order to affirm it at all in a contemporary age. Uh, but there's certainly a political aspect of this too. And I think that brings us into a complication in Latour's book that is also very fun. So, so far we've been talking about how Latour is uh, throwing everything up in the air, right? Oh, you think that religion is about the truth? It's actually about doing stuff. Uh, you think that religion is about being faithful? You got to be unfaithful. But uh, don't worry, Latour is here to uh, piss you off and <laughs> immediately take back everything that he said uh, in this very fun way. So uh, I'll read this big passage and we can talk more about it. So Latour says, uh, does this mean that we should keep everything, understand everything, swallow everything, accept everything, talking about in the Christian tradition? He says, yes, that's the only solution. I don't want to have to pick and choose. Mental reservations exhaust me unnecessarily. Heresy doesn't tempt me, nor does reform, nor revolution, or any kind of upheaval. There's no dead wood in religious utterance, for everything in it is connected branches, experiment, trial, deep-rootedness, roots, and rootlets. Either we understand what made these grow, and everything can be kept, or we don't, and everything can be burnt. If we have to revive the word once more, that means reviving everything, saving everything, clarifying everything, renewing everything, without abandoning a single sheep along the way. Not a single bit of piety will be lost, not one vapid remark, religious trinket, holy souvenir, churchy knick-knack. I want to salvage all the treasure I was promised as my inheritance for it to be mine for keeps and for me to be proud of it. You have to have a big enough stomach, a generous enough mind, otherwise it isn't worth the trouble of embarking on this business of pretending to try and talk about these things again. Uh, and he goes on to especially say even he's willing to talk about orthodoxy, which is a pretty, <laughs> like, he, he treats that as a kind of wild, rebellious thing. Um, but I think this passage is so fascinating and also very funny in the context of this book, right? Because uh, actually Latour is choosing all the time, right? Like, uh, he is taking some things up, leaving some things aside, all that kind of thing. But uh, he also thinks that you have to sort of take on board everything as a whole in order to basically like play with it. Like you, you don't get to uh, just pick up the pieces you want unless you've kind of metabolized it in this weird way. And I'm still trying to make, I guess what I think about that clear to myself, but there's something that resonates with me. I mean, I am a Roman Catholic, so just by virtue of going to mass, I feel I'm kind of doing this on purpose every day, even if I don't make that a stated goal, but it's a really neat kind of complicated passage that I think again is like, even if you disagree with it, it's a kind of like frustrating and productive disagreement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first of all, just like I like, um, when people say to be faithful, you have to be unfaithful. I like when people do this, um, 
you know, does it mean you have to keep everything? Does he have to mean you, does it mean you have to understand everything? Do you have to swallow everything, accept everything? And like, you're expecting them to say, no, of course not. But he's just like, yes. <laughs> I love, I love wholesale affirmations that are unexpected. That's also fun in writing. Um, yeah, I like it a lot because, um, yeah, I mean, just like what you said, right. It's, you have to, the, the only way that you can like really pick and choose is, is taking it all in. There's something really weird and perverse about it, but also kind of like playful that uh, the only way that, you know, you know, what's good and like what to do with all of it is if you do take it all in. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's an interesting thing to do. It, it's also really dangerous. Um, <laughs> I mean, just like with evangelicalism, right? I mean, like you have to take it all in. You have to recognize that when you're a Christian, that's a part of like what you got here. It is a part a part of the inheritance that you have. And I mean, good luck being proud of it, I suppose. Um, but like, it is something that you have to figure out how to metabolize and something that you have to, you have to have a, you know, just like Latour says, you have to have a big stomach to swallow it because like it is a vastly different thing than, than what you probably want to just accept. But um, it's also, so Latour never really talks about, at least not that I'm aware of in this book, like the extremely negative inheritances of Christianity um which there are many <laughs> as we've talked about in this podcast i mean evangelical being one evangelicalism being one of them but you know also just like the the reconquista or like all of the christian coloniality in the world all of the um awful ways christians have been complicit in in racism and misogyny and homophobia right those are things that you have to swallow and like they're bad though i mean i think that's the part that latour is leaving out is that there's a lot of it that's going to give you a big old tummy ache and like too bad this is what you get yeah no for sure i mean we'll talk more about that in a minute i think but you're right that uh there's a a severe lack in this book in particular of latour's attention to uh the political problems involved in what he's proposing uh i always think too so latour has this kind of constructivist idea of religion which i really like uh which is that religion isn't just um you know, it's not like uh, a big collection of truths that you say yes or no to. It's a huge network of stuff. It's like smells and people walking around and, and wearing weird clothes and saying funny things to each other and like living in a pretend world that they say is real, uh, all that kind of stuff. Like that's kind of Latour. That's how he communicates it, right? That it's this big network of just stuff that is always getting put together in these weird ways. That's what science is um, too. I like that. So. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the premise is that we tell ourselves that these things aren't put together, but they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, I totally agree with that. But the argument is made even better, I think, by a number of sort of critical religion people. Um, the people I like the most are people like Talal Assad or Sabah Mahmood or these kind of, um, especially Muslim anthropologists who kind of understand the way that religion is a constructed category, like it was made up in modernity for political reasons. It was made up by Christians uh, and religion has a, a political history to it that isn't just people kind of, you know, deciding what to do or, or putting it together, but putting it together for the benefit of some people and the subjugation of other people, mm-hmm. which is a, a political history that continues to today to basically decide what things are elevated to the status of religion and what things are not, uh, what religions are allowed to be disciplined more severely than others, you know, so obviously like things like Islamophobia or kind of Christian supremacy basically get like swept under the rug in societies that say, well, these are all just religions, we treat them the same. Uh, So all that to say, yeah, there's a massive kind of blind spot here on Latour's part for that political side. Yeah. 
Um, but just the same, like we can, I mean, like we've been saying the whole time, right? Even if you disagree with them or find something missing, you can have a pretty productive disagreement and look, we're doing it. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I think Latour does at least try to gesture in this direction, although he unfortunately doesn't drive, uh, all the way there. Um, but he does it in a conversation about the church that I really love. This is probably my favorite passage in the whole book. Um, he says the church does better than being the incontestable repository of the truth, right? That's what he's been criticizing this whole time. It is the contested repository of lies, elaborations, selections, revivals. It is on its machine for producing and discriminating that we need to learn to make connections. Well, this rediscovery can't be made by yourself, but only in a group a group that is itself endlessly changing circumference, encompassing the whole world or dwindling to nothing according to the intensity with which it discovers the message. Uh, and what I like about this is, first of all, that presumption that the church is this contestable repository of all this stuff, people making decisions, revivals, that mm. sort of thing. Uh, even traditionalists have to decide which tradition they want, right? Uh, and so that's one side of it. The other is that if you want to negotiate all that stuff, you actually do have to do it in a group of other people. Um, hopefully you can carve out a group that, you know, is attentive to things like the dangers of colonialism, uh, the Christian construction of race, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's all very important. But you can't just like sit in your room and like decide uh, how you're going to sort out Christianity all by yourself. Mm. Like this is a, a sort of collective enterprise. And I think it's important to uh, affirm that side of it as well. Yeah, there's no better argue. Uh, there's no better argument against that sort of like uh, lone wolf Christianity approach than like just being on Reddit <laughs> for thirty minutes. Um, <laughs> right. Go on Reddit, go on uh, our Christianity, and you're gonna find some people who are like uh, self proclaimed Eastern Orthodox uh, people, and uh, they don't. Oh, I mean, I've never been to an Eastern Orthodox church, but like their theology is orthodox. So that's me, right? <laughs> People who just try to figure it out from afar and you know, they have no skin in the game. They have, they, they can't actually, they're, they're assenting to it. Like it was like it were a GPS or something, but they're just very confused about where they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, I like this too, because you have to read this, I think almost immediately after reading the needing to have a big stomach bit. <laughs> right. <laughs> so like, Latour is like, you got to swallow the whole thing and uh, you got to choose the the path of, um, you know, not not like the revolutionary or the, the reformist or being the heretic, but just like sucking it all down and like letting yeah. it <laughs> fuck up your insides for a minute. Uh, and I think that is like important, again, to sort of figure out exactly what is Latour saying you need to swallow. And he's saying you need to swallow this thing that is actually uh toxic like you know if you want to go back to the sort of food metaphor that he introduces like it's not just an incontestable repository of the truth it's also like i don't know it's like a big sandwich where like some of it went bad but you don't know exactly where but like you do have to eat it all to beat that fear factor challenge and uh before um anybody notices you can go like throw up later if you have to or whatever but like you got to take it all down <laughs> and i think that's like a neat way of putting it christianity is the ultimate reality tv show <laughs> the fear factor of life <laughs> oh boy uh all right joe rogan I said we were gonna circle back. <laughs> he kind of is if you think about it um 
I said we were going to circle back to the Marxism bit uh, and also the Marika Rose thing. And I want to bring that in at the end here. So if you've never listened to our episodes with Marika, you super should. She's very intelligent and just uh, a great speaker in addition to being a, a really great writer. And she has this book called A Theology of Failure. And in it, she basically kind of uh, makes not the same argument that Latour makes, but one that um, I think helps us out where she argues, yeah, you've got to like take it all in. Um, it's not enough for Christians to kind of be like, oh, I'm not like those other Christians. Mm -hmm. I'm a true Christian, you know, the good kind. <laughs> and uh, instead, she's like, well, actually, like you kind of can't really be innocent in this world, especially mm -hmm. if you're a Christian. Uh, and so all you can really do, the best you can do is propose a theology that knows it will fail and, and expects to do that. Um, I think there's a piece of that that sort of resonates here. Uh, and then again, the Marxist piece with someone like Althusser is to say, well, if you wanted Christianity to speak once more to this world, you would have to fundamentally have a certain kind of revolution within Christianity, uh, one that wouldn't just throw it all out, just like Latour is advising against, uh, but one that would nevertheless try to sort out, well, what isn't being heard and how could it be heard anew? Uh, and I think that Marxism actually gives you a really good way of uh, kind of sorting that stuff out. Yeah, I think this is one of the most essential lessons for Christians on the left to learn um, that, you know, no amount of being woke online or whatever is going to um, help you escape the complicity that you and your religious tradition have in the, you know, destruction of a lot of people. Um, and I think that when we come to terms with that, we can find other places to start and fail and start and fail. You know, I think that's good. So, I mean, if we're going to do, if we're going to be Christians still, I think that we have to do just like Latour says. And also like Marika Rose says, like, you know, you, you find the whole thing and um, I don't know, you fail your way through it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think too, I mentioned this would be a good way to mediate the conversation between Marxists and people of faith. Uh, it helps to sort that bit out, too, because Marxists often the, the, the bad kind of like reactionary. OK, that's a bad word to use. The, the knee jerk is what I mean. The, the knee jerk reaction of Marxists against religion is totally understandable insofar as what they're reacting to is religion's uh, construction of uh, a hegemony of injustice. Right. Mm -hmm. Like Christians did that. <laughs> like we did build the world that Marxism is trying to tear down. And uh, you can't really blame Marxists for seeing that because it is true. Right. Uh, the the real kind of issue is, OK, well, is there a way of affirming that even from the inside of this tradition and also saying, look, when I say that I believe in God, I'm not saying that I believe in like, I don't know, whoever like Franklin Graham is talking to specifically. Like what I'm saying is uh, I believe in a, a certain way of, of going about the world. And that actually has led me to, you know, revolutionary politics in some way or other. Uh, and I think it's just like a good way of kind of mediating what you are and aren't saying necessarily by saying you're a, a person of faith. What, what you're saying is, do you love or do you not love God rather than do you believe in, you know, I don't know, a God with X, Y and Z attributes. Yeah. And uh, that changes, again, the, the tenor of the conversation. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a way different thing to say that you believe in the ontological argument for God's existence than you believe like, you know, <laughs> you love God or, or you're or you're going to like do the things that Jesus does or do the things that the prophets did or, you know, whatever. Those are two different things altogether. Um, you know, one is very circle jerky and one is like flipping over tables. So there you go. 
So there you go. We've done it again. One more philosophy book on the old Magnificast bibliography. It felt good to read some philosophy again. It's been a minute, man. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's just a, a great way of passing this awful quarantine time by sitting down, reading a weird French guy talk in the first person with no chapter breaks for over 100 pages. Doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast, and you can support us with your quarantine dollars there if you have any left to give. Uh, we also have a new sticker on our Redbubble. It's a sticker of Ernesto Cardinal, and you can also get him on a T-shirt. Uh, I doodled him. Again, under quarantine, um, this place is, <laughs> the quarantine is really just bringing out my creative side, I guess, uh, doodling around on my computer. Uh, what else? Um, we are adding some more content to our Patreon. Uh, you will probably notice the absence of a Reddit earlier in this episode. That is because we are moving them to the Patreon now, along with uh, a couple of like articles that we read um, throughout the week, current events kind of articles. Uh, we kind of just feel like there's no place to put that in this podcast. So we're moving some stuff to Patreon and doing some short like 10 or 15 minute articles with some Reddit goofs, uh, talking about uh, an article here and there of just things that are going on in the world. So if you're into that, you can find that on Patreon. Uh, lastly, as always, our music is by Amori Armstrong and our outro is by the Church Illogical in the morning, Spoon. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So